Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Why is the Bible so important? I mean, there are literally thousands and thousands of books out there. What makes the Bible so important? What makes it so special? You know, I I looked up in the Library of Congress this week. It said there are 25 million books that have been cataloged. So what makes this book so special? Other than lots of times you may find it bound in leather. What makes this book so special? Because there's a lot of great authors in this world. You think of people like William Shakespeare, you know, Henry Longfellow, Charles Dickens, Victor Hugo, Edgar Allan Poe, Jane Austen, Ernest Hemingway, and they, all these books will really inspire you, but they'll never change you from the person that you are. Lots of books inspire. One book changes you. The book of 1 Peter is a book about suffering, and I'm not here to point any fingers. I'm not here to make any judgment calls. But perhaps there could be some people watching online or even some here this morning that really the only time that we would open up our Bibles would be on a Sunday morning. And I'm just not too sure that's enough to carry us through. For 83 years, this church has always been a church who took God seriously. And they take his word seriously. This, this church has never had the, the leave it or, or take it option when it came to this. Uh, this was not written, some people say, well, it was written for another time. No, it was written in another time, but it was written for this time. Uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, she used to tell her kids every morning. I was listening to one of their daughters speak, and she said, oh, mama would say this, or mother would say this every morning to us. Read your Bible, study your Bible, know your Bible, because it is a sure guide in an unsure world. So the question is, why is the Bible so important? Because the Bible has the power for salvation. The Bible has the power for salvation. Right there in verse 23. It says, for you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. See, it's in this book that we learn that really God loved us. God had a plan for us. It's in this book that we learn that he sent his son because he loved us. In this book, we learn that his son suffered for us. In this book, we realize he died. He was buried for us. But then he rose again so we could have the forgiveness of sin. We find that in here. So what does it mean that he's the living and enduring word of God that we've been born again? I like this verse in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive. It's active. It's sharper than any any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. This living word of God It's active, it's alive, it's the living Bible. These are not dead words on a page. These words, they interact with us, they change us. And the thing about reading the Bible, you could have been reading it for years and years and years and years, and you wake up one morning and you're reading, you're like, whoa, I never saw that before. Like, is this a new edition? 
Do they add a couple verses? I've never seen that there before. It's because it's a living document. And maybe because as you're reading through it, you're, you're in a different season of life. And so as you read it, it connects with you differently. Maybe you read it in a different translation and you never heard it that way. All of a sudden it connects differently with you. Maybe you read it with a different voice inflection and it just connects with you differently. It is a living, breathing document. It's active. It's alive. And it's fresh every time you open it up. Because it's the living word of God. Ephesians tells us it's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Let me tell you, there has not been a book who has had more hatred and more opposition throughout history than the Bible. It is the living word of God. But not only is it the living word of God, it is the enduring word of God. It has endured throughout time. It was written over 1,500 years, written by 40 different authors, written in different places and different times, translated into more than 3,000 languages. In fact, we support missionaries right now who are translating God's word for a generation who's never had it. I think of the Palmers. They've committed their life to translating the Bible for the Korah people so they could actually have it in their own language. The Bible has been translated into over 3,000 languages. Read by more people than any other book in all of history. Written on three different continents and in three languages. Covers hundreds of controversial topics with complete unity. And it has survived for 2,000 years since its completion. Because it is the enduring word of God. It has endured through times. And of course, we don't have the original letters. But they have been meticulously copied through time. And when I say meticulous, I I mean meticulous. The, The Essenes were those who would make copies. Because knowing that the originals were written on materials that would not last forever... The Essenes took great um, care. They, they knew exactly how many letters would be on the top of that page. They knew exactly how many letters would go down the side. They knew exactly which was the middle letter on the page. And if there was ever one mistake, they never initialed it and crossed it out and put the, the word there. No, they burned it. And they started again because they wanted to have a meticulous copy of God's word. It is the enduring word of God. And it is endured through persecution. Kings, communists, dictators have tried their best to destroy it. They have burned it. They banned it. They've mocked it. And here we are still holding it in our hands. Because it is in the enduring word of God. Voltaire, one of France's most famous uh, French philosophers, French writers. Um, He wrote lots of material that was anti-Christianity. And uh, he said that Christianity will be swept into history. In 1776, he actually made this statement. 100 years from my day, there will, be, there will not be a Bible on the earth except one that is looked upon by antiquarian curiosity seekers. Did you know his home was sold to the Geneva Bible Society? His home became a storehouse for gospel tracts and Bibles. 
Do you know the printing press that he, that he had all that literature print against Christianity was later used, the same printing press, to print Bibles? Because it is the enduring word of God. If this wasn't the word of God, it would have been destroyed years ago. But it's the enduring. And there will be many books that will intrigue you. But only one book will change you. And God paints this majestic portrait of himself in these pages. And when you read this book, it will change you. And this book, it, it's a chain breaker. It can break the chains of addictions and, and bad habits. This book takes the gloom out of the grave. Because there's hope. And on this word, we take our stand. And the Bible, it's our moral and our spiritual compass. True story. Um, a Christian speaker went to a a secular university to be in one of those debates, you know, where they wonder, they're defending the existence of God, one of those debates. And, and the room, it was hundreds of students, university professors, a guest uh, scattered throughout the auditorium, and they introduced him. And, and after they introduced him, he began to make his way to the podium, and he said, I felt the hostility in the room. And so he said, what I did is, as soon as I got to the pulpit, I said, I would like everyone to stand. And so they all stood. And he says, I want you to point to north. And as he watched the audience, they're like, some were pointing this way, some were pointing that way, some pointed this way, some pointed that way, some weren't too sure what the, which way to point. And he says, the proof that there's a God is that God has created a world, a magnetic field in the north that every single compass in the world points north because of this magnetic field. And when you have your compass out, you can go, this is north. There is no guessing game. Well, this book is the moral and spiritual compass of our life. It points true north Maybe it's time for us to return to the principles of this word. I've heard it said, and I've said it myself. Oh, I just want God to speak to me. Do you know how he speaks? Through his word. The majority of time when God wants to speak to you, he speaks through his word. He's never too busy to speak. And when you open up God's word, you may be shocked, like, wow, thank you, God. Never saw that there before. And the fact is, how can we know the hope and the promises of God if we don't know what's in it? So I'm saying feast on it. Some of us may be starving spiritually because we haven't taken time. Maybe some of us are committing spiritual suicide because we're just not eating and feasting on God's word. And you know what happens? You know what kind of happens when we don't make this a part of our lives, daily lives? First, you get weak. Then you get irritable. Then you have no joy. 
and you get sick in your soul and you die. When you don't read God's word, you forget those verses that say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You forget those. And what happens? We become one of those people. You know, the people that would say, well, church certainly isn't like it used to be. The preacher doesn't do it for me anymore. That music, I don't know where that came from. Ah, those elders, not the character that they used to have years ago. Maybe, maybe it's time to change our diet. Maybe a few less hours in front of the TV and a few more moments in God's word could make all the difference in our life. So I'm saying read this book and it will give you joy unspeakable. It will give you strength to carry the burden that seems way too heavy. And when you prayed and asked God to move the mountain and he doesn't, this will give you the strength to climb the mountain. It will give you the strength that is greater than your trial. Strength to be able to hold on during those storms of life. Because they will come. So how important is that we would know God's word? Let's continue to the next verse. It says, For all people are like the grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That was actually one of the first verses I ever memorized, because he's quoting from Isaiah there, right? Do you know what this, this living and enduring word of God does? It causes the lost to be found. It causes the doomed to be rescued. It causes the damned to be redeemed. That's the living and enduring word of God. That's why Peter says, you have not been born again with some perishable seed. No, but the imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. So the reason that God's word is so important, it has the power for salvation. Now, we're going to dip down there in, in, in chapter 2, and you say, well, Donald, we're, we've ended chapter 1. Well, lots of times when you're reading through, you know, you realize the first part of another chapter may connect with the, the other chapter. Remember, chapters and verse divisions weren't given until hundreds of years later. Uh, about 800 years ago, I think, is when they divided the, um, the chapters. They're not inspired, and the verse division, they're not inspired. They were just put in there to help us locate and find Scripture. And so you'll notice in verse 2 it says, therefore, which means it's concluding what's just been said about the living and enduring word of God. And he says, therefore. See, you could read it this way in verse 23. For you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Therefore, rid yourself. And it puts on a list here. My friend calls it the filthy five. Because the Bible has the power for transformation. Where is that? The filthy five. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Malice, the desire to cause pain 
to someone else's life. You see, you've been born again through this living, enduring word of God. Therefore, get rid of it all. (laughs) All that malice. Don't get rid of most of it. Get rid of it all. Because that's what, the, that's what the, um, the power of God's word does. It transforms you. Then he says, deceit. In other words, don't promise one thing and do another. Don't twist the facts so you can have your own advantage. Uh, then he goes on to say, get, get rid of that hypocrisy. You know, Jesus was the one that turned that word into a negative word. Uh, before Jesus came around, that was not a negative word. If you were called a hypocrite, that was not negative. Because in Jesus' day, an actor was a hypocrite. That's what they called them. They were pretending to be somebody that they're not. Now, when I was reading through this, you would think that maybe Peter would put, like, the big sins in there. You know, maybe he should say, um, you've been born again by the living enduring, so therefore get rid of all adultery, get rid of all stealing, get rid of any thoughts of murder. Like, aren't those the big ones? But Peter deals the ones that we deal with every day of our life because they're all relational. It's all relational stuff. The stuff that you and I deal with every day. It's what, how we treat people. The power of God or the, the living, enduring word of God has the power for salvation and it has the power to transform you from who you once were to be a little more like Jesus. And it goes on here, it says, like newborn babes who crave milk. He's referring to this as the word of God. Crave it, crave the word of God so you can grow up in your salvation. This enduring word of God, it has the power to save you. It has the power to transform you. And when you taste it, and when you spend time, you'll want more of it. So maybe if I say, you know, take the challenge to read your Bible, maybe that seems just, oh, yeah, it's too big of a challenge. So let me, give it, let me whittle it down for you. I want to challenge you just for the next two weeks. From now to Easter, could you take the challenge to just to read God's Word till Easter? Every day. Just a small portion, but where you dive in to God's word. Now, I know some people say, well, I believe, you know, um, to be transformed, you know, I'm, I'm more into serving. And let me tell you, that is good, but it is not the most powerful tool for transformation. Some of you may say, well, I, I'm more into evangelism. Evangelism is good, but it is not the most powerful tool for transformation. Some would say, well, I like my small group. That's where it all happens for me. Small groups are really, really good, but it is not the most powerful tool for transformation. You may say, I like coming Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are really good, but it is not the most powerful tool for transformation. Like the Word of God. If I said to you, I've made a decision I am going to be a healthy eater. I'm going to change because I'm now about healthy eating. And you say to me, okay, Donald, what are you going to do? And I say to you, I have decided that every Wednesday for lunch, I'm having a salad with locale dressing. And you would say, is that it? Yep, that's the plan. One lunch per week, I'm going to be a healthy eater. It's going to change my life. Well, it may help 
that much. But it won't make me a healthy eater. And I'm just saying, one hour on a Sunday, which is great, but it probably won't transform you like the Word of God. I feel like as a church, we try, we try hard to make sure that the Bible comes alive for us on Sunday morning, but it really isn't enough. So that's why I want to urge you to take the challenge, maybe just for the next two weeks. Say, I'm, I'm going to do it. And let me tell you, it won't happen. It will not happen unless you make a plan. Unless you make a plan. You may say, well, you know what? I really want this to happen, so I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I do it before I eat breakfast. Maybe that's your plan. I'm not going to eat breakfast until. Or maybe you say, I'm going to do it at lunchtime. Or I'm, before I go to bed at night, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to make the plan. I have a friend of mine, Scott. I was talking to him just a couple weeks ago, and he said he and Luke, a friend of mine, Luke, said we made this challenge to each other. They were going to do a 10-day devotional together, and they said what we're going to do, they did it at home, and then they called each other on the way to work, and they discussed it. And he said, we took a 10-day challenge, and he said to me two weeks ago, we're now in four months. We haven't missed a day in four months. But they made a plan. The plan was only to last, supposedly, for 10 days, but it has continued to go on and on. Maybe that might be a good start for you. Find somebody you can be accountable to. Say, hey, let's read something together and we'll talk about it. So make a plan and, and then just do it. Because it's not about volume. It's just about a habit. This is what I want us, want us to walk away with. Don't be okay. Don't be okay with not reading your Bible every day. Just say, that, no, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay because I want God's word to transform me. Thanks for listening and consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com. There's no